I actually, this is what I'm preaching for, and the page actually came out of my Bible, so you can trust that I've read it a lot. <laughs> Why don't we just ask the Lord um, to bless us as we uh, look deeply into His Word. Almighty God, uh, as we come together this morning, uh, we ask uh, that the Holy Spirit will be at work here, um, making clear the complicated things in Scripture, helping us to apply them to our lives. Father, we ask that as we spend time in Your Word, that You will bless us. We want to hear from You, and we ask that, that You will speak to us. Amen. So, you guys know a little bit about me, but something most of you won't know is that I love history. I grew up reading it for fun. I actually didn't read Ukrainian, even though I grew up there, so um, history is easy to find online. It's free, so I just read history. I love it. One of the most interesting things to me, though, about recent history is the case of Germany, the country of Germany. Because after World War I, Germany was ruined as a country, and many of their young people had been killed. And yet somehow, Germany, under the leadership of a wicked man, again initiated a global conflict, which they lost. And Germany was even more destroyed than before. Even more of their people were dead, and the, the country was just in absolute ruin. And yet, today, the diplomats say that when America wants to do something in partnership with Europe, the first country that they ring isn't Britain or France or Italy, but Germany. They say that where Germany goes, Europe follows. Somehow, Germany has become the leading nation of Europe. It's a total reversal of fortune. It's happened in the lifetimes of, of some people that are alive today. Well, our passage this morning is also about a reversal. But not, not just a random reversal that happens to a country but a reversal that God Himself promises to bring about. And ultimately, a reversal that you and I will experience. So firstly, if you're new, you're so welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us. We're in the, at the end, actually, of our sermon series on Haggai, which is called First Things First, The Message of Haggai. We've been looking at this tiny book of prophecies from the Old Testament. It's only two chapters, four prophecies. We've been looking at one prophecy each week. This is the final week, so we're looking at the fourth prophecy. To briefly recap, though, for those who are new or who've been away uh, for a couple weeks, and the first prophecy, God rebuked His people for allowing the temple to lie in ruins while they upgraded their own home. And then in the second prophecy, they'd begun to rebuild the temple, but they'd become depressed. 
because they'd realized that after they'd finished rebuilding the temple, it would only be a shadow of its former glory. And God encourages them in the second prophecy. And then in the third prophecy, God actually corrects the incorrect view that God just wanted them to build something for Him. God tells them He wants their whole hearts. And then unilaterally, before they can even repent, God just promises to bless them. He says, notice the date, and then look at your fields and your fruit trees, because the harvest is going to be really plentiful. And then today's passage is the final prophecy in Haggai, before we begin our next sermon series next week. And you'll notice that it's got some really interesting ideas in it. Ben and Adam, they've been really generous to me (laughs) with this passage. They're really practicing a sink or swim kind of mentality. Uh, But despite this strange language and some of the foreign imagery in this passage, it has a powerful lesson for us about who God is and what He's going to do. Now, I'm excited to work our way through it together so that we can understand what it means, how we can apply it. So this is what God says in verses 21 to 22. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of their brother. In order to understand what's going on, we have to understand their situation. This is a group of approximately 50,000 returned refugees. They've come from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and they're kind of living in the ruins of a once great civilization, right? You see the rubble of this great palace here, the rubble of the temple over there. They're surrounded by enemies, people who don't really like them. They're trying to rebuild the temple, but because they're so poor, and there's so few of them, they realize that it will only be just like a pathetic shadow of its former glory. They're crushed people. Everything really does seem lost. Will they even survive or will they be swallowed up by history? Will they cease to exist as a nation? Will God allow them to fade into nothingness? And it's into this hopeless situation that God steps, speaking to Zerubbabel, their leader, And he says that a great reversal will take place. That things will not remain as they are forever. That he will shake the heavens and the earth. And God is meaning, of course, to evoke all kinds of memories in the mind of Zerubbabel and of his people. Right? The very first sentence of the Bible starts with the phrase, probably almost everyone here knows it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when God says that He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, He's reminding the people that He's absolutely capable of it. He made them. 
but He can shake them up at will. It'd be like shaking a snow globe for us. He also talks about chariots, and that would have instantly reminded the people of the time that they were fleeing from the army of Egypt, which was made up of chariots, which at the time, absolute height of military technology, like an F-35 plane today or something like that. And God parts the Red Sea, they flee through it, the Egyptian army's chasing them, and God brings the water back down, drowns the entire Egyptian army without even a battle. God talks about riders and their horses turning against each other, brother against brother. And that would have reminded the Israelites about the story of Gideon, which probably many of the the young people in church today would have learned in Sunday school, when God used Gideon and 300 men to cause 135,000 Midianites to turn against each other. And the scriptures say that at the end of the day, there were only 15,000 left. 120,000 of them died. God won a great victory by turning them against each other. The Israelites didn't even have to fight them in a battle. God is telling Zerubbabel, trust me. Because I'm the Lord Almighty, the one who's done great things in the past and who will again do great things in the future. God is saying that He will reverse the fortunes of this small returned refugee community and with His miraculous help, they will rise again. And friends, this really ought to be just so encouraging to you and I. We serve the same God as Zerubbabel. The same God that performed all of the miracles which we read about in the Old Testament and the New. God has revealed Himself in history to be able to bring about His will regardless of what stands in His way. Friends, maybe you're feeling discouraged or depressed this morning. Maybe it seems like your life is in ruins. If that doesn't describe you this morning, there's a good chance that it will at some point in the future. The world is a broken and fallen place. Well, remember who your God is, if you're a Christian, and what He has done in the past. Your God is not some puny, powerless idol, but the ruler of the cosmos. And nothing will defeat Him. As long as you, and as long as you belong to Him, your destiny is secure. I, I have to say this truth has been a great comfort to me recently. About a year ago, slightly less, I was desperately unwell. I was close to death with a mystery illness that doctors couldn't diagnose. I couldn't even get up out of my own bed to sit on the couch for months on end. And during that hard time, the knowledge that my God was greater than my illness, greater than death even, 
is the thing that enabled me to have peace. And now, even though I'm greatly recovered, it's still the thing which gives me confidence. God gets even more specific in the next verse, though, in verse 23, about how things will be reversed. The last verse of this book and of our sermon series. Let's read it together, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. In order to understand this verse, what's going on, we actually have to understand a little bit about Zerubbabel and about his family history. Zerubbabel's grandfather was a wicked man named Jehoiakim. And he was the ruler of the kingdom when they were overrun by their enemies. He was the reason why they're only a little refugee community instead of a proper country. Zerubbabel's grandfather lost the kingdom. There was shame upon the family name of Zerubbabel. But it gets even worse. Let me just read just a couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 22, which is the prophecy which God gave about Zerubbabel's grandfather. Jeremiah chapter 22, starting verse 24. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is Zerubbabel's grandfather, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. And skipping forwards to verse 30, God pronounces bad thing about bad thing, but for the sake of time, we'll only read verse 30. This is what the Lord says. Record this man, Zerubbabel's grandpa, as if he were childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This was Zerubbabel's grandfather. This was his family. He was cursed. Did you pick up that the signet ring is present in both of these passages? The signet ring used to be the most precious possession of ancient rulers. They would wear it as a necklace, or, or, or necklace around their neck or on their finger. And God said that even if Zerubbabel's grandfather were his most precious possession, a signet ring, he would still take him off and throw him away. God was that filled with disgust with Zerubbabel's grandfather. His family was the family God turned away from. What a horrifying family history. Can you imagine being the family that God turned away from? In our passage that we're reading this morning from Haggai, we see God restoring Zerubbabel. We see him reversing his fortunes. We see that God has chosen Zerubbabel, that he will care for him. God is in the business of making something out of nothing, in the business of 
helping the helpless. And God is telling Zerubbabel that his family did not define him. That despite the wickedness and the tragedy in his family history, God was going to bless him. And friends, this really should be filling us with hope right now. Because no matter what your family background looks like, no matter how dysfunctional or broken or messy it is, God is in the business of restoration and reversal. And the amazing truth is that God does not define you by your family. He does not write you off based on what your parents or your grandparents have done. If you turn to God, like Zerubbabel did, He will love you and accept you and work to make something out of your life. He will bless you just like He did with Zerubbabel. And just as like a little side note here, it's worth noting that God uses the language of choosing here in this verse. God is in the habit of choosing people to bless. Not because they're necessarily innately worthy of it, but just out of His own free choice. And we, here this morning, are also chosen by God. Not in the exact same way that Zerubbabel was chosen, but we are chosen. And there's so many verses in the New Testament that talk about what it means to be chosen by God. So let's just read just a couple of them together, just to get a a feel for how we, here this morning, are chosen by God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 says, For He, that is God, chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Then we'll just jump right across to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 where he says, but you are a chosen race. This is us here this morning. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his, that's God's, own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the light. Then we'll just read just one more from John chapter 15, verse 16. This is Jesus talking. And he says to his followers, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Moving back to Zerubbabel, God is telling Zerubbabel that he is not forgotten, but that he is chosen. He is chosen for a purpose. That God has chosen him to play a part in his grand plan. Just like we read that God has chosen us to play a part in his grand plan as well. Even though our part is slightly different from Zerubbabel's. God is telling Zerubbabel that his efforts to rebuild the temple, lead the people, were not in vain. No matter how bleak the results seem to be. 
because it was God's plan that he was participating in, not his own. God is telling him that he's part of a bigger story and that his part will not be forgotten. God is telling him that he would favor him in a special way, that he would be like God's signet ring. Here's something interesting, though, moving back to history. The Persian historical records are pretty good at this time. And we know that Zerubbabel never became a king. We know that the great wars and shaking of the world didn't take place in Zerubbabel's lifetime. So what's going on? Did did God's word fail? In the words of Paul, by no means. We meet Zerubbabel again in the New Testament, in the genealogy, which just means family history, of Jesus. Turns out that Zerubbabel was the direct ancestor of Jesus, and that he passed down his DNA to the great and ultimate King of Kings, the one who will bring about the ultimate shaking of the nations and kingdoms of the earth. God did care for Zerubbabel and their people, but the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is in Jesus. The great reversal described in this passage didn't happen during Zerubbabel's lifetime. And it didn't even fully happen 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked and talked on the earth. The scriptures tell us that in his first coming, Jesus came with peace and mercy and gentleness. But the scriptures also talk about Jesus' return, his second coming, which is ultimately what this passage is pointing towards. Scriptures say that at Jesus' second coming, a great reversal will occur. It's so much more amazing, though, just to read the words of Scripture than to describe it. So let's just read, we'll read 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 6. And it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, the second coming of Jesus. And then we'll just really quickly, we'll jump over to Luke and we'll just read a couple of verses from Luke chapter 6 which give us an even better idea of what this ultimate reversal will look like. Jesus says, starting Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those, blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil 
because of the Son of Man, which is another name for Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is pointing towards the fact that there will be a great reversal. The great and final reversal. The one which Zerubbabel waited for. The one which Peter and Paul waited for. The one which Calvin and Luther waited for. The one which you and I are waiting for. And this is the reason that we can actually put first things first. That we can seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, like it says in Matthew chapter 6. Because we have the promise that in the end, our God, Jesus, will be victorious. And that we will share in His victory. And that He will reward His followers who are faithful. This is the hope that refreshes our hearts when we're beginning to feel despair. This is the motivation that helps us to choose righteousness over wickedness when we're feeling tempted and we're feeling weak. This is the reason that we can serve God faithfully, that we can give Him our whole hearts, not just a little something, but that we can give our whole selves to God year after year because we know that at the end of time, Jesus, our God, will have the ultimate victory, that every knee will bow before Him, and that He will repay every one of His followers for their service, that we will share in His victory forever, that, that our fortunes as Christians, as believers, are tied to His, and that His destiny is to reign over everything and everyone forever in paradise. Just before we pray, I'd just love to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, which I think is so relevant to what we're talking about this morning. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Friends, why don't we just pray now together? Heavenly Father, we thank you and, and, and even praise you in the same breath that you are the Almighty God. We thank you that we can trust you, that we can go all in on you. And know that our futures, our destiny will be secure. Father, we pray that when life gets hard, that you will remind us of who you are, how powerful you are, and of the things that you have promised to give us when you achieve your ultimate and final victory. Amen. Friends, I